baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Hi, you're listening to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. My cousin owns a beautiful four-story brownstone mansion in Crown Heights. He bought it in the early 90s, and it's full of original details like push-button light switches made from mother-of-pearl and the most intricate crown molding I've ever seen. My mom always said prior to him buying it, it was owned by the same black family for over 100 years. I never believed her because considering the current barriers to black home ownership, how in the world could a black family have owned that house as early as the 1890s, just decades after the end of the Civil War? I didn't believe her until I watched a recent episode of HBO's The Gilded Age. We must be pretty bad for you to choose to work two jobs and live like a servant when you can stay in your own home and work in a drugstore with you. Father, it's what I want to do. That's I own the pharmacy, which I plan to pass down to you. Set in 1882 New York City, The Gilded Age centers on two rich families, one that represents old money and another that represents new money. It also follows Peggy Scott, a black woman who is an aspiring writer from a wealthy black family in Brooklyn. Peggy belonged to a class of people known as the black elite in the 1800s. Today, we're talking with Danae Benton, who plays Peggy in The Gilded Age. We're also talking with Carla Peterson, the author of a book that documents this little-known part of history and inspired some of the characters on the show. But first, a quick look on how Brooklyn's black elite came to be. In 1799, slavery in New York State began being phased out. By 1827, most enslaved people were free, but Manhattan still relied on money made during slavery and was very sympathetic to the South. But Brooklyn, which wasn't a part of the city at the time, offered a better life for black families. Then came what was known as the Panic of 1837. This was a financial crisis that started a depression. It caused wealthy white landowners to sell their homes in the Brooklyn neighborhood, which soon became known as Weeksville, now known as Crown Heights. Black families bought this property and Weeksville became a thriving and self-sufficient African-American neighborhood. Community members built businesses, schools, and charities. And because they were landowners, they could vote. And even more black folks came there during the 1863 draft riots. That's when Irish immigrants in Manhattan incited violence against black people. They were upset they were being drafted into the Civil War. Black folks were being beat up in the streets and their homes burned. It was so bad, Union soldiers were called in to help. More black people headed to Brooklyn where they had safety, and hence the growth of the black elite continued. 
like I can't have black women not feeling love. <laughs> like for Peggy, I right. will never be able <laughs> to show my face again. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, besides the fact that I love the show and am obsessed with your character, but also I wanted to chat because media is powerful and entertainment can be used as a form of truth-telling, which is basically what journalism is to its core. Some people did not know about the existence of this black elite class, myself included, with maids and pianos and all of these symbols of wealth until the Gilded Age. What did you know about the black elite in New York City during that time period before taking on this role? I didn't know anything specifically about New York black wealth, but most of my theater career was playing women from the 1800s. And the difference is those were white women from the 1800s. And I remember feeling like, I know there are also Black aristocrats from this time too and beyond. So in 2017, Danae started a Twitter feed called The Great Princess Project. She highlighted Black royal women from around the world, both past and present. And I kind of started fortifying my own relationship to the fact that I know Black people have existed in all spaces at all times. And so when Peggy came along, it felt like the opportunity to get to sort of play the role that I've been calling in. You are representing this overlooked chapter in American history. What struck me is how you portray these nuances of that sort of double consciousness that W.E.B. Du Bois often spoke of, and in a period piece that must come with its own set of difficulties. Were there any pressures of becoming this character, but also portraying this very nuanced storyline? Yeah, I felt really viscerally protective of Peggy and of like this opportunity and also just her being one of the main representations of Blackness that we were seeing on the screen. I mean, honestly, to be real, I just wanted to make Black women proud. I know the feeling so well when we see ourselves included in a story in a way that's harmful, in a way that is diminishing. And I was like, I won't be able to sleep at night if this story is a part of that in any way. And so there were some beautiful things that were already on the page and in the sort of intention of Peggy. But when it came to certain nuances, I felt an incredible amount of responsibility to have Black women watch this show and not have that feeling. Was that hard? Having a voice while also being conscious of the way Black women who speak up are often seen as angry Black women. Yeah, I mean, I was always aware of that tightrope in the way that Peggy's always aware of that tightrope. When Danae did raise concerns about the initial direction of her character, she felt supported, which is not always the case in Hollywood, an industry still predominantly run by white men. What was different in this case, Dr. Erica Dunbar, a Black woman who served as the historical consultant for the show before becoming a co-executive producer. I could just continue to ground myself in the fact that, like, all all I'm asking is that we keep telling the truth. I'm asking for something we all want. Let's keep getting to a richer, deeper truth and keep peeling back our own biases and our own blind spots that might be seeping in. But I was incredibly intimidated and it just felt too important. I just see such a direct connection to the way the media, I mean, you think about the propaganda of all of the 80s and 90s, it's like, and how that also helped the success of the war on drugs. And like, I just don't take it lightly the way storytelling affects politics, affects 
laws. There were nights where I was like, well, I'm scared, but I also can't fall asleep. So I got to <laughs> send this email about this line. You're right. All of these forms of media have shaped so many of our beliefs. But let's rewind. What was your journey to here? Like, were you playing Noah's Ark when you were five years old? <laughs> I was definitely like an expressive making up choreography praise and worship team at church energy <laughs> for sure my mom was not a stage mom but she definitely like signed me up for things and was like you're gonna get out of bed on saturday morning and go you know use this gift with all these voice lessons we've been paying for and then i was like i just want to sleep in she was like get in the car <laughs> <laughs> do you ever think about those giants like hattie mcdaniel and what she went through because well we're laughing about your mom pulling you out of bed but that in itself was undeniably a privilege it is inspiring and it kind of just it hurts my heart to think about the nuances that she was holding at all times. I feel like a lot of us, especially if you are Black and you are, your parents were sort of like the first of any kind, or you're the first of any kind, this sort of pressure of Black excellence and how it can really be a double-edged sword. I used to think that I could only honor my ancestors and honor Hattie McDaniel by being like absolutely great and never messing up and being perfect. Um, and then I got introduced to things, just like a range of Black feminist healing literature that actually started to make me think like, oh, actually, do I honor them the most by letting myself be human? I get to have reactions and I get to have a bad attitude sometimes and I get to be sleepy and I get to not be in this constant state of trying to prove my humanity. Like, do I actually honor my ancestors in that way by taking up a type of space that it was a lot more dangerous for them to take up? So that has felt like a more sustainable way to look at honoring those women whose uh, shoulders I stand on. You said once that you almost gave yourself vocal damage because you were trying to have this gospel sound. It made me think of the ways in which we sort of question each other's blackness. Do you still wrestle with those feelings of needing to do something in a specific way because that is what someone else has defined being black as? Yeah, I mean, I've done like so much <laughs> examination around this. If you are a black kid who's raised in white schools of education, your whole story is being told you sound white your whole life or da 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 da. It's this strange dilemma between understanding the like internalized classism and racism and white supremacy that goes into that kind of mindset and the real question of like assimilation and what like it's it's so complex and so i have had to do a lot of time with my own healing around like oh really it's all just about belonging and I get triggered in those moments because I feel like I don't belong. And I'm able to see where it was coming from, from, you know, my Black cousins who were making fun of me. And what they were also facing was like the classes, how race and class are so tied together. And like, well, I don't have access to these things. So why do you? And it's really remembering that the enemy is white supremacy and not each other. And even in moments where I am made to feel small, or even if it is like, a black person who I'm feeling that kind of judgment from, I have like, I pause and I have enough grace to understand that like, we are all actually battling the same demon that tries to like make us a monolith. And so it helps me move through those moments and like see that we're all just trying to belong. And I have started to try to give myself more permission to validate 
why my version counts and stories like Peggy's story really helped me because it's really all of us being um, victims of erasure and intentional erasure because if our stories weren't erased, I think all Black people of all dialects and music styles and hip styles and skin complexions would be able to connect ourselves to a lineage. While The Gilded Age is a TV show and Danae is playing a character, she understands that seeing this representation on screen means something special to Black women and shares what helps her walk fearlessly in this role and in life. Surround yourself with sisters who know who you are when you can't see it. In those moments when I'm second guessing myself, like even in moments where in other jobs where like I was gonna speak up about something that was bothering me, I would feel this pressure of like, oh my God, I'm making a problem, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I have to pause and be like, I didn't write this race this moment. Actually, this is this producer's problem. I didn't create this issue. And so like taking moments to remember that like the delusion does not exist within us and to just have people who can remind you of that. We'll be right back with more Beyond Black History Month. If you enjoy learning about Chicago culture and history, WBBM's newest podcast, Shades of the City, is for you. Join me as I go into the community to hear about the history of the Pullman Company that created opportunities for African Americans in the late 1860s. One of the major contributors to the development of Bronzeville, as an example, was the uh, role of the Pullman Partners. Subscribe now to Shades of the City on the Odyssey app and Apple Podcasts. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. In the Gilded Age, Peggy's father is said to be inspired by a black man named Philip Augustus White. He was a pharmacist and is the great-great-grandfather of Carla Peterson, an author, professor, and historian. My field is 19th century African She wrote about him in her book, Black Gotham, a family history of African Americans in 19th century New York City. Carla used her own family history to tell stories of Brooklyn's black upper class. Her book starts between 1810 in 1820. Slavery hadn't ended in New York State yet, but there was a small free black community. It's this black community that sets itself up to prosper and to succeed. Carla says they did it through education, mostly through segregated public schools. One such place was the African Free School, which was founded in 1787 in the neighborhood now known as Greenwich Village. By 1840, which was the height of the 
black population before the Civil War is 16,000 or so people. And of that, most of them are going to be unskilled laborers, not well educated, but a small portion of them are what we would call elites and acquired education, good paying jobs, and a certain amount of wealth. But a change in 1821 made black families realize the importance of owning land. The New York State Legislature became very fearful of the impending emancipation of blacks, of black New Yorkers. Because remember, slavery in New York State began being phased out in 1799, with most enslaved people being free by 1827. So they passed a piece of legislation imposing a poll tax of $250 on New York State black men. Women, of course, couldn't have the right to vote. And black men could vote before then, and they couldn't. So another impetus for wealth was to get the right to vote. In addition, she says the greatest source of wealth for these black elite families was through real estate. I often like to say that black New Yorkers, yes, they were black, they were African-American, but above all, they were New Yorkers. And what did New Yorkers do? New Yorkers, they want money, 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 and more money. In New York before the Civil War, It was buying and selling land, and that is what many black New Yorkers did. The elites used their wealth to distinguish themselves from black families who were poor. And yes, this sounds like respectability politics, which we'll get to in a sec. But Carla says, like wealthy white people, they drew on an idea of a very specific kind of taste. And taste manifests itself in different ways. But the origin of taste goes back to the British 18th century and to the British Enlightenment. There is this idea of moving inward and the development of a set of ideas about the inner self, an idea of sensibility, of being inner. And it's something that is available, is there in every human being that can get nurtured through education, through practice. And that is then the grounding, is that it's something from the inside, but it develops then in different ways on the outside, their outer manifestations. Markers of taste in that period included elegant handwriting. So using Carla's theory of taste, wealthy blacks would take what they had on the inside, education, and manifested it on the outside their handwriting. The black elite held debutante balls, or coming out parties for black women, just like what rich white families did. Carla describes the coming out parties of her older relatives. The detailing of the gowns, the silk and the jewelry, the pearls, the diamonds, etc., etc., and then the dancing. Here is where you actually see the way in which black elite in this postbellum period is looking at the white elite and saying, oh, should we be doing as they do? She says this idea of respectability that caused people to self-regulate, especially black women, was developed by the British in the late 17th and 18th centuries. You have an aristocracy that's given to excess. The more, the better. And then you have tastemakers who came out with these two magazines called The Tatler and The Spectator. 
And they are our social media of today. So if you want to know what's in, what's out, what's good, what's bad, you would go and read their weekly columns. And they promote this idea that good taste is moderation. Moderation, decorum, not flashy, ostentatious. She says respectability wasn't a racial thing, but was a way of old money telling new money how they should behave. Self-regulation was seen as a marker of taste. Carla says it was widespread in Britain before it made its way to black wealthy families in New York City. The elites, they wanted taste to trump race. And ultimately, we know that that really doesn't happen. Which is interesting because that's the basis behind respectability politics that still exists today. The idea that if marginalized groups are respectable enough, life would get better for them. But wealth nor taste protected black families from racism. You could go out on the street one day and you could get on a streetcar without any problem. Or you could go out and they'd say, no, you have to wait for the next streetcar, which is for colored people. She says to most white people, the black upper class was no different from black people who were poor. That said, two things can exist at once. So while the black upper class was fighting to differentiate themselves from other black folks, they were simultaneously fighting for those same black folks. While they were being elite and dancing the night away in fancy clothes. They were race men and women who worked tirelessly on behalf of their race. They established newspapers to advocate on behalf of their community, became involved in politics, joined the Board of Education, and were abolitionists. And women were not sitting around knitting. Ida B. Wells comes to New York and she galvanizes the women of New York and they form a woman's club, the Woman's Loyal Union, and they are activists trying to help blacks in the South, but also blacks coming up. As I listened to Carla, I thought about my mom who has impeccable handwriting. It was something her wealthy grandmother in Jamaica installed in her decades ago. She believed things like handwriting would set my mom apart and give her the best chance at life. Little would she realize in 2022, my mom never writes anymore, but is instead hunting and pecking on her cell phone as she tries to text. But needless to say, history is kind of cyclical. Home ownership is still tied to wealth, women are still expected to self-regulate, and society still sees black people as a monolith. But media, whether a radio report, a book, or a show on a streaming platform, has the power to push new ideas, more truthful ideas. And maybe that will help society move past some of these antiquated concepts that clearly don't work. In April, Danae will pick up the role in Manhattan as Cinderella in the musical Into the Woods. Coincidentally, that was the first musical she did in high school. The Gilded Age was picked up for a second season, filming will begin this summer, and eventually, Danae wants to go behind the camera to write and produce. And Carla is working on another book. This one is about taste among 19th century African Americans in New York City and Philadelphia. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, you should subscribe. Also, please rate and review our podcast. It helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month is a production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to our producer, Andy Egan Thorpe. The WCBS News Radio 880 manager is Tim Scheld. Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Femi Redwood. Thanks for listening. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 